0: Welcome to the Later in Life Planning Show with Patrick Cawley, brought to you by Keystone Elder Law, right here on News Radio WHP 580. Now, here's your host, Patrick Cawley. Hello, I am Patrick Cawley. I'm the owner of Keystone
1: Elder Law. We serve people all over South Central Pennsylvania. We try to be the shield that protects the middle class from the costs and the challenges of getting older. How do we do that? We, we try to anticipate specific and predictable threats, uh, especially spe- specific threats that, that are going to have a disproportionate effect on the middle class. So we're, we're using estate planning tools such as a power of attorney, a will, certain kinds of trusts. We're, we're using these tools and talking to people about their unique circumstances to try to anticipate what's coming their way. So the Later in Life planning show is part of our emphasis on educating people first before they make major decisions to secure a better future for their family. If you hear something and you have questions, if you'd like to learn more, we offer weekly online workshops where we go through information that middle class families need to plan for the later years of life. Uh, I try to answer questions, I try to uh, give some ways to take action right away. So right, you know, right after the, the workshop, people can do certain things to put themselves a little bit further along toward a more secure future. If you're interested in any of these weekly online workshops, go to KeystoneElderlaw.com, select the workshops tab, and you'll see an option. You can, there's one for pre-planning. It's called middle class estate planning and asset protection. And there's another option: how to pay for long-term care. We update the week uh, every week. We update the um, the date of the next uh, of each of those workshops. So you'll see when when the next one is. And if it doesn't work, sign up anyway. We'll we'll send you a recording if you aren't able to participate in the workshop. So a lot of what I talk about in the workshops and on this show, the later in life planning show, has to do with legal planning. To protect your hard earned money from specific threats. Today's show is not about your money. Some would say today's show is arguably more important because it gets into your quality of life and your values. I'm talking today about medical care at the end of life. And for some people, this is a very heavy conversation. They don't want to have this conversation. Uh, you know, some people don't want to have the conversation about. Their, their finances and long-term care. It's just it's just something that they would rather not think about, much less talk to other people about. Other people I talk to about this subject, you know, you can tell it's they've thought about it before. This is very matter of fact for them. But I'm going I'm going to encourage everybody, even the people who who are very blunt about this or matter of fact about it, to set aside what you think you know and and think a little bit deeper and there are resources available to do that. I'm going to tell you how the law works on this issue and how the legal planning works for for medical care at the end of life. But I want to re- I want to emphasize right off the bat the the importance of communication with your family. When I meet with clients, I I do often sense hesitation to discuss end of life medical care with with their children. And I get it. Death and dying is not light dinner table conversation. I suppose you could decide to make it dinner table conversation. In fact, you know, I've 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 said that to to clients before and actually just in the last couple of days I realized there is a website called deathoverdinner.org. That's deathoverdinner.org. And at that website, you uh, apparently enter information about your intentions or your wishes or preferences for the end of life. And the website generates a sort of script. It gives you questions to ask, it tells you, you know, this might be a good way to broach a certain subject so that you're taking the discomfort out of it. And that's not the only resource out there, although it does have a pretty catchy name and I, I want to check it out some more myself. But there's other resources out there. The Conversation Project is a very good website. The Five Wishes program is very good. And we'll talk a little bit about that as we go forward. But the point is to talk about it because, you know, it's the legal planning is fine, but this is especially an area where other people need to know what your thinking is on this, and sometimes it helps to get their perspectives. Think of this just like your legal and financial planning to secure a better future. You know, you might come in to see me at Keystone Elder Law because you want to protect the entire value of your home or other real estate from long-term care costs or from taxes or creditors. Fine, you know, we can do that, but when you do that, let's be honest, what you're really doing is providing a gift to your family, because by doing that kind of legal planning, you're making things go more smoothly for you, for your spouse, for your kids, if you get sick or if you pass away. It's all about this continuity uh, of, of planning uh, in the event of incapacity. So that may be the same reason why you write down other details, Lists of bank accounts that you have at various financial institutions, who your financial advisor is, who your estate planning lawyer is, who your accounting uh, accountant is. So you might write down passwords. Uh, you need passwords for everything these days. You might have a, a medical portal for your doctor's office, your online banking, your social media accounts you know you need a password for everything so writing these things down it's the same idea you're you're providing information for continuity so other people don't have to guess they don't have to basically be stuck with a a, a 1000 000- piece puzzle, and there's no box top telling you what it's supposed to look like when you're finished putting it together. I mean, that's obviously a mess. Um, While I'm on this subject, and before I jump into the the depths of of medical planning at the end of life, there's an excellent book I want to recommend to you. Uh, A friend of mine is an elder law attorney, does the same kind of work out in Western Pennsylvania. Tim Seckler is his name. Well, his wife, Robin Seckler, put together a book. It is entitled how to change the light bulbs when I'm gone. And it's a gift you would give to your family so that they don't have to put together that 1,000 piece puzzle with no clue about, about what to do. Um, so, and, and here's the backstory to Robin Seckler's book. Uh, her, and I'm sure it's impacted in some some respects by Tim's practice uh, in elder law, but her father went to the doctor's office maybe 12, 13 years ago. He received a terminal diagnosis. Instead of saying, woe is me, he the first thing he did after the doctor's office was he stopped at a dollar store and got a cheap spiral-bound notebook and just started writing. And he wrote all those details, who his advisor is, who his lawyer is, who who his accountant is, where to find certain things. But he went a step further and he was writing, you know, that that faucet on the side of the house and you have to jiggle it a certain way before it works. You know, He was writing all these little things, and in fact, he used to joke with his wife and two daughters that, you know, you ladies are going to live in the dark when I'm gone because I'm the only one who knows how to change the light bulbs. Hence the name of the book, How to Change the Light Bulbs When I'm Gone. And Robin says that for— you know, years after her father finally passed away, that you know she would consult the notebook to figure out you know how to do certain things around the house to help her mom and so forth. So you can do something like that. You can use her book. Uh, you can use your own notebook, but but write down details. And we're going to talk about the same thing for for medical care because really what we're recognizing is that most adults do not simply pass away in their sleep at home. I mean, that's what we all want, of course, but very few people get that wish. Most do not die suddenly. Most people are dying from chronic conditions. It's heart disease, it's cancer, it's lung disease, certainly dementia. And that means a couple of things. I mean, it, it tells you that there's a period of time where if it's chronic, it's happening slowly. There, there's a there's a period of time where it's not clear whether a person wants that next experimental treatment to extend life or whether they want to. Switch the goal over from extend my life to comfort measures. And that's, of course, when palliative care or hospice becomes the focus and in making the most of the, per- the time the person has left. But, you know, if you're not able to speak for yourself because you've been incapacitated, you're unconscious, uh, you have dementia, whatever the case may be, it becomes even more important to have conversations, to leave instructions. kind of like that book I mentioned, leave some sort of how-to for your care. And and this gets really into your values and what you've seen in your life, whether it's the loss of of a spouse or a parent or a a sibling. You've seen people go through end-of-life issues, and you've probably formed opinions about how you would want to be cared for. There's a lot being written about this. We have tons of articles about this at keystoneelderlaw.com. You can search our uh, resources, our articles, elder care articles, by category. Uh, You'll see one is an end-of-life category. There's some medical categories and so forth. And we write uh, on this from a number of different perspectives and angles, looking at various things. And I'll go into that as we get into the show today, but I do want to recommend... The resources we have at KeystoneElderLaw.com. You might also search for Keystone Elder Law through uh, YouTube and you'll see an interview I did with Robin Seckler where she described her father and the book and the reasons why she did it. She tells the story much better than I have. So, there's a lot of resources out there. Of course, I'll keep doing this show week after week, and I'm so glad that you've joined us and hope you're getting something out of it, learning something, uh, having some questions raised. I'm going to take a break, and when we come back, uh, we'll dive into medical care at the end of life. You are listening to the Later in Life Planning Show on News Radio WHP 580.
0: Now, more of the Later in Life Planning Show here on News Radio WHP 580.
1: Hello, everyone. I'm Patrick Cawley. This is the Later in Life Planning Show. I'm talking today about medical care at the end of life. In the first part of the show, I was talking about how you really need to have conversations with the people closest to you. Let them know where you are with this issue. And before you can do that, of course, uh, you might want to take advantage of all kinds of resources that are out there to Learn more about end-of-life care, medical care, uh, when you have a chronic illness. There's no shortage of information these days. Uh, I mentioned the Five Wishes program. I mentioned uh, the Conversation Project. And, of course, I mentioned KeystoneElderLaw.com and the elder care articles we have by category. These are all good places to start gathering information. But before long, you, you, you do need to take action and have a conversation with your family get their thoughts on it, sit down, and just be intentional about it. And talking about medical care at the end of life has benefits for you, obviously. Uh, it's your opportunity to minimize suffering if that's your goal. It's a way to make sure that your values and your wishes for quality of life are honored near the end of your life. Um, but but more importantly, I think talking about these issues takes away a burden from your family members. Imagine, if you will, standing at the foot of a hospital bed and having to make life or death decisions for a parent or a spouse. Imagine the emotions and the stress of wanting to get that right. You know and, and maybe even you know the, the angel on one side, the devil on the other. You're not, you, you could go either way. It's you, you, you want them to be around, but maybe that's a selfish wish. And on the other hand, you want to, you want them to be free of suffering. So there's, there's really, you know, a lot of going back and forth. Well, you can take away that, that struggle by giving a little more guidance on what your, your wishes are. And but, you know, it's interesting. Not long ago, a sociologist was doing a study on this issue and found that over 90% of people surveyed thought that talking about death and dying is important. But of those people, only 27% had actually done so with the people closest to them. So, you know, it might allay fears and concerns if, for other people if they if they know what you're thinking and it's, it's one way to get your wishes honored. So... If you enter a hospital, uh, it's been the law for quite some time, hospitals routinely ask if you have a living will. This should not be confused with your last will, and testament, a living will, or a living trust for that matter. These are all different, completely different planning tools, but somehow we have overlapping language. But they'll ask if you have a living will. And if you have never worked with an estate planning attorney to have a comprehensive plan for the future, the hospital will have you complete a form because they don't want to be left in the position where the patient can't speak for himself or herself, the patient can't express a decision, some sort of treatment authorization has to be given, the doctor can't just go treating without permission from the patient. And nobody knows what the patient's wishes are. They just don't want to be stuck in that position. And if there's no family around, then they actually have an ethics committee they'll set up, and they'll make your decisions for you. The reason they set up an ethics committee, of course, is because they have an interest in treating you more, because that's how they get paid. But of course, you know they're honest people. They're they're not. Uh, they want to check themselves. So, but do you really want a committee of people? Uh, as as honorable as their intentions might be, making your medical decisions at the end of your life—I—I I don't think so. Not if you can come up with your own plan. But let's say you you never complete any sort of healthcare power of attorney or living will, and uh, and you don't get one filled out when you go to a doctor's office or a hospital. Well, state law sets forth a default rule. Uh, the default rule is the so-called healthcare representative law. So. Somebody who is over 18, who is unable to express any wishes for medical treatment, uh, and and who does not have a healthcare power of attorney, which is the right way to do it. So if, if you meet any of these criteria, then the law says, well, the following people in this order can talk to the doctor and make a binding decision on medical care. Number one would be the person's spouse, unless, of course, there's a divorce pending and then that person's out of the loop. But the person's spouse comes first. Then it would be an adult child of the person. Then it would be a parent, then a sibling, an adult grandchild. And then finally, if none of these other people are around, an, any adult who knows the patient's preferences and values. So I just rattled off a, a list of people who might be in your life. And if you haven't done any legal planning, they might be the ones making your medical decision. And it would go in that order, spouse, adult child, parent, sibling, and so forth. But let's say you've done no planning, so this person is the one. There you are, unconscious. You need medical treatment of some kind. You have no living spouse, and so there are your children, and you have more than one. And what happens if they disagree about what kind of care should be provided for you? Now what? Well, without proper planning to decide uh, that one child you just know is too emotional for this kind of medical decision— Or another child who has been estranged from the family and should have absolutely no say in the matter whatsoever, there they are. And they have equal authority to make life and death decisions for you. Isn't that a pretty picture? And then it gets worse. What if they disagree with each other? What if they can't get along? Well, I I suppose it could go to court and a judge could be the tiebreaker. But now we're talking about spending money. And more importantly, we're talking about spending time that you don't have. If we're in the hospital, if a decision has to be made about your health, time is of the essence. And then think about the doctor and the other healthcare professionals who are caught in the middle. They're looking at this unfolding. They don't want to get sued, and they don't want to be drawn into a family drama. So they just want some direction. Are we, are we treating this patient, and if so, how? So obviously, cutting through all of that, the much better course of action is to complete a healthcare power of attorney and living will. State law sets forth all of the elements that have to go into the healthcare power of attorney and living will. I will say, and I I know I've made some digs at at uh, sort of one size fits all planning. Uh, someone came into to me about a year and a half ago with with the Susie Orman 1995 healthcare power of attorney and living will, and it contained none of the elements that Pennsylvania law says should be in it. So that was a little discouraging. But let me just go through what this this planning tool looks like so you have a sense of what you're getting into. It starts with this lengthy notice. It's about, I don't know, four pages long. It never used to be this long, but back in 2018, a new law uh, came into existence in Harrisburg uh, dealing with organ donation and tissue donation. And the goal initially And I know this because I worked in the Senate at the time and I worked extensively on this piece of legislation. The goal was to make it easier for people who want to be organ or tissue donors to do that um, and to get out education about how to do that. Uh, It sure brought out a lot of opinions, and I don't want to go on too much of a tangent, but— you know the 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 prosecutors the law enforcement folks uh said well what if, what if it, you know this is a under review for a potential homicide we we want to have first crack at this before we uh go into organ donation of course we 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 said you know, that's that's important so we there were concessions made there um one person uh who was for about 10 minutes in a very influential position in the House of Representatives um had some bizarre thoughts about you know making it clear that a person can ask for pain medication during the organ procurement. That tells me he either believes that people feel pain when they're dead, or he was trying to scare people away from organ donation. And either way, that kind of left a bad taste in my mouth. I, I didn't like either possible interpretation of the situation. But anyway, we were doing this organ donation law, and because it gets into end-of-life medical treatment— it expanded this notice that you have to wade through at the front of the healthcare power of attorney and living will. But when you boil it all down, what the the notice on the first four pages are telling you is that you're doing three things and it, it goes to great lengths to tell you, these are all very personal decisions. There are no right or wrong answers. Um, you're drawing on your own values, your own experience and, and you're making it clear to people in a legally enforceable uh, form Uh, what your wishes are for medical care at the end of life. So the first thing you're doing is you are picking someone who will speak to the doctor on your behalf. It is your legal right to say what medical care happens to your body. But if you are unconscious and or have dementia or have had a stroke, whatever the case may be, you can't exercise your legal right. You're picking someone who will exercise your legal right and say what the medical care will be. Couple thoughts on on that. Uh, when you pick somebody, uh, the first thing you're doing here to make your decisions, um, I, I recommend picking one person at a time, just going back to that issue of what if they disagree, you know, so have one and then if that one can't uh, serve in that role, they're sick, they're unavailable, then the next person steps up and it might be your spouse, then it would be child number one, child number two, and you can pick whatever order, but I think it makes a lot more sense to have one at a time. So these are just some thoughts. I'll come back to decision makers and some other uh, concepts to, to be aware of when making medical decisions at the end of life. Come back, come back. We'll come back from a break in a moment. But you are listening to the later in life planning show on News Radio WHP five eighty.
0: Welcome back to the later in life planning show on News Radio WHP five eighty. Here's Patrick Colley.
1: Okay, I'm Patrick Cawley with Keystone Elder Law. This is the Later in Life Planning Show. And before the break, I was talking about cutting through a lot of problems by doing this right, planning for medical care at the end of life. And, and obviously having conversations is extremely important with your family, even if you do the right legal planning, which is a healthcare power of attorney and living will. It's still very important to talk this through with the people closest to you. The first thing I said, the first of three things you're doing in the healthcare power of attorney, is you're making uh, a, d- a decision about who's going to speak to the doctor on your behalf, and you might pick uh, your spouse, then an adult child, then another adult child. Some people want to to have uh, multiple children as decision makers with equal authority. I just think you run into problems with delay if they disagree because there's no tiebreaker if they have equal authority, just something to keep in mind. But otherwise, what's the skill set if you're choosing someone to make your medical decisions? Well, obviously, you better trust them because this is some pretty important stuff. There's somebody who who maybe you've spoken to about this so they're aware of your issues. Um, you know, sometimes I've had like a couple come in and they'll say, I have one child who's an accountant. I have one child who's a nurse. The accountant gets absolutely weepy at the thought of his parents getting sick. Um uh, the the nurse can speak the language, can make these emotional decisions, but is terrible with money. And I tell you, well, it's it's very clear who is going to be the financial power of attorney and who is going to be the healthcare power of attorney. And you can always list the other one as the backup. But the skill set is, you know, it helps if there's some understanding of medical concepts, but it's not a requirement. I would say it's more of an emotional skill set. Um, but when it comes to deciding this agent in your healthcare power of attorney, the person who's going to speak for you, keep in mind that this doesn't necessarily involve a, an end-of-life decision. It, it could be that, but it could just simply be authorizing a surgery because you were in a car accident. It could simply be admitting you to the hospital or to a nursing home. You know, you're going to be around for a while, but, but so this is not an end-of-life situation, but somebody has to make your decisions for you. We switch over to the end of life when we get into the second thing you're doing in the healthcare power of attorney, which is the living will. When does the living will part of this planning tool become effective? Uh, Now we're talking about it has to be serious brain trauma or brain disease. Uh, it has to be, you know, you're not able to make your decisions and, it, and the doctor thinks you're either uh, completely incapacitated and you're not going to come out of some si- significant cognitive impairment, you're, you're permanently unconscious, or it's an end-of-life situation. And what does that mean? That means usually a team of doctors have decided from various perspectives and specialties that uh, it doesn't matter what they do. If they introduce a new treatment, if they continue a treatment— whatever's going on is going to end the life of the patient in, in relatively quick fashion. So that's when the living will has legal effect in Pennsylvania. So the you know, let's talk about some of the things that, that you're going to talk about in the living will, because it takes you through some specific scenarios. Uh, you're going to have to think about that that brain trauma or brain disease that significantly and irreversibly affects your brain. Um, the doctors have decided if, that that's going on, and, and let's say there's no realistic hope of significant recovery. So you can imagine what life looks like then. You, you may be in a permanent coma or a vegetative state, and you know that's, that's a conclusion reached by a team of doctors. They, they don't want to rush into that conclusion, uh, but, but when they decide after a number of tests that they've tried everything, but it appears you're not coming out of a coma, you have a decision to make. It's going to be, look, I'm going to indicate that I want you to continue aggressively treating me with the same treatment goal we've had my entire life. If it's broken, fix it. Keep me alive longer. That's one option. Another option that that you will have is more of a quality of life decision where you say, look, if I'm just lying in a hospital bed, uh, you know, and and you know, somebody's having to pay for all this care, and uh, I'm not even aware of what's going on. The quality of life decision I'm going to make is to stop the the ag- aggressive medical care to keep me alive longer, and instead focus on my quality of life. Uh, so it's just a shift of the treatment goal when the doctors have made the conclusion that there's no realistic hope of you regaining cognitive function. So maybe you're not in a permanent vegetative state or coma. You might be in an end-stage medical condition. So it could be, you know, stage four cancer. And uh, the doctors are, are, are saying, well, whatever, you know, it doesn't matter how we treat you. We think the end is near. And then you have decisions to make there as well. It's the same sort of thing. Do you want aggressive medical care to extend your life or do you want to change the treatment goal over to comfort measures? Make the most of the time that's left. Administer any pain medication that is necessary. Um, even if the pain meds might have some chance of shortening your life, you're sort of opting for those comfort measures. Uh, they even provide, um, you know, if, if you have to go through a list of specific life prolonging procedures, like if your heart stops, do you want CPR? Um, keeping in mind that if they do CPR and they bring you back, you are in an end-stage condition or a permanent coma. So is that what you want them to bring you back for? And some people might say yes, because I want the ability to say goodbye to somebody who's not here yet they're out of town you know they might have to travel some distance if i'm in this situation so the answer is yes other people the answer is no let me go at that point if i'm if i have you know weeks left to live and it's going to be suffering just let me go not to mention that when they do cpr there's uh, a significant risk they're going to break your ribs there's going to be discomfort the next thing you'll have to think about is: Do you want to be intubated and put on a ventilator if you're not breathing at that end of life stage? And some people might say, "No, let me go. I don't. I don't want to be uh, kept alive if if uh, that's if I don't have much time left and if I'm in this state of suffering." And then, of course, um, you know there is some damage to the throat using the uh, intubation and and ventilation. But you'll go through this whole list of life-prolonging uh, treatment options such as surgery or chemotherapy or radiation, uh, dialysis to keep your kidneys working. And these are all technically life-prolonging, even antibiotics. Would you want antibiotics if you're you're in an end-of-life situation? And interesting story there, you know, I've had physicians and nurses as clients, and one of them did pick up, or more than one, it was a couple who picked up on the antibiotics and said, look, if I have stage 3 cancer, stage 4 cancer, antibiotics are not going to keep me alive longer, but are they going to be part of the comfort measures to help me feel better, help me be a little more comfortable? And I guess they're, they're thinking, you know, what if what if there's a UTI or a rash or something like that? And so, of course, when the next physician or nurse came in, I, I shared that rationale with them and I said, what do you think about this? Uh, should you go with antibiotics even if you're end stage? And and the next doctor or, or, or a nurse said, well, you know, I understand the logic, but if you have comfort measures, that's the language, of course, that hospice is looking for. At that point, they're using the heavy-duty stuff like morphine or other high-powered pain medi- medications, and they said that's like a heavy, warm blanket over you. You're not feeling anything, so so you really shouldn't think of the the antibiotics as part of your uh, your comfort measures. So interesting. I don't know ultimately what the right medical answer is there, but it was interesting to hear their their feedback on that. Um, One thing you're going to have to do too, and this gets a lot of people um, interested, is you have to decide if you are end stage, will you want food and water given to you through tube feeding? And by tube feeding, I mean either an IV in your arm or under certain circumstances, a tube that goes sort of into your belly. Um, And so, you know, I I think that what you want to be guarded about here, and I'm taking this straight from a geriatric medicine specialist at Hershey Med. Uh, I had the pleasure of serving on a panel with her, uh, speaking to some people planning for a future with dementia. And she explained to them when we got to this subject that tube feeding is is usually a decision. If people say they want tube feeding of food and water at the end of life, they're making that decision because it's they're thinking in present-day mindset and they're thinking, when's lunch? Or when's dinner? And maybe you're thinking that right now. As you hear me, you're thinking, when's lunch? When's dinner? Well, as you go towards the uh, end of life, the systems of the body start to shut down. You no longer feel that sense of thirst or hunger, so you're not waiting for food. And in fact, your body isn't absorbing the, the nutrients anymore the way that it once was. You're certainly not going to build up muscle tissue by having some fluids pumped into you. So, uh, her argument was you're really only prolonging discomfort by choosing uh, tube feedings of food and water because your body's not absorbing it. You're pumping this stuff in there that you don't really need, and it's going to cause swelling and so forth. So take that for what it's worth. I'm not the doctor. She is, but but it seemed like a pretty compelling uh, argument against tube feeding for uh, of food and water. I think it just hits some people that Wait, you're gonna deprive me of food and water? That that sounds cruel. Um, and am I gonna be thirsty? Well, the answer is probably no. There's uh, she indicated there's probably no discomfort. People often show up in the ER uh, dehydrated already, and and it's usually marked by sleepiness and you're lethargic. You're not you're not certainly not uncomfortable. So that's just an interesting uh, part of the living will that you will fill out if you do the proper planning. Of course, we're available to do this anytime at Keystone Elder Law. You can find us at KeystoneElderlaw.com. More on this medical planning at the end of life after the break. You are hearing the Later in Life Planning Show on News Radio WHP 580.
0: It's the Later in Life Planning Show here on News Radio WHP 580. Now your host, Patrick Collie. So I was speaking before the break about uh, medical planning.
1: For the end of life, the importance of conversation with people closest to you, the importance of doing the legal planning, the, the legal side of it the right way. There is a default under state law, your health care representative. If you are on that list, you can you make medical decisions for someone in the family, uh, but it's there's no way to indicate what your wishes are. And you might have multiple people in a category of family members who disagree and there's just a way to plan around all of that. And and frankly, in my experience, a lot of the healthcare uh, facilities don't always recognize that authority just because they're not educated well on it. You know, we can make these rules, but until we tell the people on the business end of it, uh, this is how it works. Uh, they just you know they're in their lane. They're they're providing medical treatment, and they don't always know what these procedures are. So the best way to do this is to have a healthcare power of attorney and living will. Um, I was going through, you know, the the healthcare power of attorney side of it, where you're naming agents, who you're going to name, why you might name them, the order in which you're naming them, and then I was going through some of the decisions you'll have to make in the living will, uh, if you have a sort of cognitive impairment and you're not ever going to come out of it, if you have an end stage medical condition, and the various options you have to indicate what your wishes are. Um, I did indicate earlier that that organ donation became a big part of this. Uh, you can indicate and probably should uh, follow the law and indicate wishes for organ and tissue donation. Just a little bit about the logistics of how that works. Um, the most they're going to do during your life uh, is sort of check your your wishes in your health care power of attorney and living will. Or if you said at, at PennDOT when you were renewing your driver's license that you want to be an organ donor or a tissue donor, it says it on your license or your photo ID, and that means you're on a on a database with the Pennsylvania Department of Health. It's called Donate Life PA, and there's a website, and you can go on there and everything. Um, but at, at most, they're going to check what your wishes are. Maybe they'll look at your medical records or, or blood tests. You know, If you had, let's say, chemotherapy, the toxic effects of that might make it so that they cannot do organ or tissue transplantation uh, using your body parts. But- um, Assuming that that you that everything is—you indicate that you do want to be an organ donor, you don't have any disqualifying conditions, nothing happens while you're alive. It's only when the treating team leaves the room because you are deceased and the new team comes in for organ transplantation that they sometimes do something that would fall under the category of artificial support. But it's not everything I was just talking about before the break where we're keeping you alive longer using various kinds of artificial support. The, at this stage of the game, it's just keeping blood flowing and, and other ways to to keep the organs, organs and tissues viable for transplantation. It might look the same, but that's not what they're doing. Uh, they're just keeping the organs and tissues viable, and it's really a matter of hours that they have to do that. So... Organ and tissue donation, of course, saves a lot of lives and improves a lot of lives. But that's a very personal decision. And as of 2018, we're also making decisions about these more visible donations of tissue. Uh, the legislature tried to get out in front of advances in medical technology by by saying, "Look, what if it's what if somebody loses a foot or a hand?" Historically, uh, they would get uh, some sort of mechanical prosthetic to h- allow them to function and so forth. Now they think it's going to be more common, um, although this almost never happens and makes the national news when it does right now. But in the future, they think they're going to be able to transplant from a deceased person a hand, a foot, even facial tissue. Um, and and But, you know, from the standpoint of the donor, you want to know that, that more visible donations would be done. If you have traditional funeral plans involving an open casket, then obviously that's going to conflict with your plan. So that's something to keep in mind. Some of the other uh, legal planning that comes up or questions on this legal planning for end-of-life medical care, people often ask me if their health care power of attorney and living will takes the place of a DNR. If you're not familiar, a DNR stands for do not resuscitate. That is a medical order. That is a, an order from a from a treating physician to all other healthcare uh, professionals, and and it only happens after they sit down with the patient and they say, "Look, it, it seems like you have weeks left to live. This is what it's going to look like. This is how we're going to treat you." Now, having just learned how that's going to work for you, if your heart stops next week, do you want us to restart it? Or if you stop breathing, do you want us to to resuscitate you? Um, And if the the answer might be yes, it might be no, but if the answer is no, let me go, they're going to issue a do not resuscitate order, DNR, and that will follow you around the hospital and so forth. And if you go home, technically that stays in the hospital, so there is such a thing as an out-of-hospital DNR. Um, there's also something called a Pulst, a physician's order for life-sustaining treatment. All of these are doctors' orders. This is not part of your legal planning, uh, but it has. It's almost like the law of the land for any other medical professional. So you go home from the hospital, days pass, you you fall down on the ground. Somebody calls nine one one. Whoever shows up. If, unless you show them an out-of-hospital DNR or a pulse, which often comes on very bright cardstock, and they always tell you put it on your refrigerator for exactly this scenario, if you unless you show them that, they are going to resuscitate you and get you to the hospital. That's their job, uh, but they will follow a medical order. Finally, one question I often get, and it's it's seemingly impossible to ignore this subject when talking about medical care at the end of the life, is, of course, what some people call physician-assisted suicide or medical aid in dying. Uh, there's legislation in a number of states, including Pennsylvania, called Death with Dignity. And this is, of course, where advocates for this kind of medical aid in die- dying believe that, look, if a patient is is able to make an informed choice— The only humane thing to do is to give the patient the option of dying before the pain and deterioration become unbearable. There are people on the other side of the issue, uh, and this would be a very thorny issue to get through the legislature, and I'm I'm not sure it, it will anytime soon, but that's just my opinion. But the people on the other side of the issue consider it morally and ethically wrong to give active support to someone who might be feeling depressed or hopeless or lonely fearful, uh, helping them to seek death as a solution. Look, my purpose is not to decide who's right in that debate. I just want you to know what the issues are. But there are a few states where medical aid in dying has become the law. They're mostly Western states, Oregon, Washington, California, Colorado, and I believe uh, Vermont It has joined their ranks so they enacted laws that allow this. Um, it became a lawful option in those states. I think initially you had to have a residency requirement. You had to, to live there for at least a year before you could uh, qualify for that kind of care. You know, the idea being they don't want everybody flying from all over the country to their states to overwhelm their health care system uh, to take advantage of this as much as they might want to uh, offer this uh, with all the you know, best intentions. They didn't want to be overwhelmed. I believe a federal judge has since struck down that that residency requirement as an unlawful restraint on travel between the states, which of course, violates our federal constitution. but those those are the states that currently offer it. There has been pending legislation uh, in Pennsylvania uh, for years and years and years, but it hasn't gone anywhere. Um, I, you know, again, I could be wrong, but I think Pennsylvania will be the 49th or 50th state to pass this law if it ever, to be uh, the person who is suffering, who, uh, who would self-administer the medication to end the person's life. And you, of course, there's, you have to be over a certain age, you have to be 18, you have to have meet certain requirements, you have to uh, meet with a physician who verifies you do in fact have a terminal condition. Uh, it's going to result in death in the next six months, and that of course puts you in a little bit of a bind because what if it's something like ALS or some neurological condition where you're going to lose control of motor function and so forth, and you have to be the one who self-administers it? So it's sort of a tight window of time, and and if you're you know if the person is is at all hesitant about it, they might miss their window. So this is a very interesting issue, and I'm not really sure myself where I I come out on this, but it's one that some states have grappled with and they came out in favor. Currently, this is not an option in Pennsylvania. Um, You know, where it has become the law, the attending physician, it has an obligation to inform the patient of alternatives, such as to make life better for people around them, people who are suffering, um, and, and they do a wonderful job. Uh, what's interesting, by the way, is hospice care. Often, people on hospice care—we, we, I think, a lot of the time, we think of that as okay. That's the end of the road. You're on hospice care. Well, people end up living a little bit longer, um, and I'm not sure exactly why that is, but that's what the the statistics show. In any event, um, th- there's all kinds of stop gaps in this medical aid and dying legislation. It, you know, a person has to it has to wait. They have to make a request, wait a couple days, make another request. There's all these these controls built in to make sure it's not an impulsive decision. So hopefully that's enough to sort of answer some of the information there on the last topic for medical decisions at the end of life. I hope you've learned something. I hope you go to keystoneelderlaw.com to find more information. I hope you join one of our weekly online workshops. Thank you for listening to the Later in Life Planning Show. I am Patrick Cawley with Keystone Elder Law, and I'll see you next week.